0: Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shirley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times radio app. Uh, Coming up on today's episode, 40 years of British attitudes. Uh, There's a survey which has been conducted every year since 1983, so we're going to dig into the figures to find out how opinion has changed about how big a role the state should play in our lives, tax and spending, and... Who does the housework in your house? That's coming up in just a moment. At uh, the moment here from the columnist panel. But as you may have heard, uh, Rishi Sunak uh, made his big announcement on climate change and included in all of that, he was discussing the future of your bins. The proposal that we should force you
1: to have seven different bins in your home. I've scrapped it.
0: Oh, well, thank goodness for that. Thank goodness for that. But there are real knock-on effects uh, for all of that. I mean, if we don't have seven bins, we're going to have to rewrite every part of our cultural life. I hope
2: Enjoy this delightful experience in happiness. See Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Bins.
0: I hope, I hope. It's home from we go. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, well, it's not just it's not just Snow White and the Seven Bins. There's obviously also Enid Blyton's Secret. Seven Bins. Uh, the film, uh, The Magnificent Seven Bins. And of course... Seven Bins. For Seven Brothers. Music will have to be rewritten re- too as well. Things like this.
3: It's time to begin, I'm counting in.
1: Five, six... Seven bins. Five, six, six, Seven Bins.
3: Session
0: from a western my dad's birthday. My Romeo Romeo and cowboy got some head to toe. Wanna make you mine better get in line. Five, six. Seven bins. No, you spent your morning doing this. <laughs> Not a problem to problem it. There's more. Of course, there's this. S Club. Seven bins. get down tonight. I come out. Yeah, I get down tonight. Uh-huh. Everybody get, get down tonight. Seven bins. S- Some people think that Kate McCann is a serious political journalist. The Times' very political editor Uh, actually, she's just been giving me suggestions for this or what? Things like this: seven bins. Seven bins. Some more. Got some more. We got some more.
1: Uh, Seven bins.
0: Seven bins. Seven bins going under. Yeah. Uh, What more? Seven
1: bins.
0: It's not a proper job, this, is it? Right, that's enough of that nonsense. Right, coming up, uh, we'll talk about British social attitudes in just a moment, but first, it's time for these two Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. And we are joined by Manveen Rana. Hello, Manveen Rana. And this week's Matthew is Matthew Paris. Hello, Matthew Paris. And we are joined also by Manveen's box of donuts.
3: (laughs) I know it has become as regular a guest as any
0: of us. Elevating Thursday morning to one of my favourites of, uh, yeah. of the of the colourist panels. It was
1: great they arrived early with Manveen this morning, but because last time I w- was on, I was still trying to kind of lick the sugar off my <laughs> yeah. my lips while while we were talking. You note the late Queen Elizabeth never ate donuts, and that's why. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did you find that? Did you take? I think it, there's a
3: whole chapter in Debrett's about the eating of donuts. And eating.
0: It's very <laughs> difficult to eat, eat a whole one without licking your lips. No, isn't it? Can't. Impossible. Possible. <laughs> anyway, let's not get bogged down in that. Right, uh, we're off to Paris, or at least the king is. Uh, he's been addressing the French Senate this morning. Let's take a listen.
2: France has been an essential part of the fabric of my own life for as long as I can remember. Indeed, as I have been astonished to discover. This is my 35th official visit to France. Each and every time, I have been struck by the warmth of the welcome I have always received and by the immense good that can be accomplished when France and the United Kingdom work together. Now, on the occasion of my first state visit to France, my belief in the indispensable relationship between our countries is as firm ...as it ever has been.
0: So he's the first monarch to address the uh, French Senate... ...and uh, he went on to use his speech to say that the planet... uh, ...the the crisis facing the planet is great and grave. We'll come on to the the politics of all that in a minute. Uh, How do you think he's doing, Matthew?
1: Well, I think I'm going to put aside my incipient republicanism... (laughs) ...and admit uh, that this is going rather well. The pictures are fantastic... French people do seem to be engaged. And you you can see that royal visits like this are quite an important part of our foreign relations armoury. I think it really
0: helps. Um, and actually, you're completely right about the pictures. a nice picture on the front of... Well, it's on the front of the Times and lots of papers today of uh, the King and President Macron and their wives at the banquet. And then you open it up and you've got... we well, you've got everything. You've got the Arc de Triomphe, you've got Mick Jagger, you've got... Um, uh, Emmanuel Macron and the King with their heads sticking out of the sunroof of a car. I mean, what more do you want, memory?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, I'm I'm watching it on a screen in live time, just behind you. Yeah. Um And you know, it's amazing. He've, he's got the entire. French Senate, on their feet with a standing ovation. He's been presented with sort of a throne to sit on, which is <laughs> controversial in France. <laughs> uh, I thought they did well there. Um, and and I mean, it seems to be going incredibly well. And well, More what than that, the,
0: the French have been in the streets chanting, God save the king. Doesn't is, happen here. No. <laughs>
3: it doesn't happen in France. As a
0: general rule, it doesn't happen in France no. They tend to take quite a dim view yeah. of <laughs> What
1: that would Rob ro- ro- Robespierre make yeah. make of all this? Yeah. Um,
3: but but this, this this can't be bad, you know, sort of given where relations have been in the last few years, it feels like this is probably timely. Yeah. It's probably a good time to be mm. extending an olive branch to Europe.
0: And it is interesting because Rishi Sunak has tried to do similarly, you know, repairing some relations with France. And on all the big questions, whether it's uh, defence and Russia and Ukraine, or uh, the small boats crossing the Channel, or actually even climate change and tackling, you know, those things, they are all going to require... Working with France, I think
1: relationships between statesmen are 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 important. I, I think they matter, and uh, if there's a good rapport, for instance, between uh, Sunak and and Macron, or if there's a good rapport between the British royal family and the French people, I think it makes a material difference when you have to uh, negotiate, renegotiate, iron things out. Not a big difference, but a, a useful little difference, I think.
0: Um. And do you think that he is towing that lie? I mean, we've only been sort of trying to follow what he's been saying, Manveen, but, you know, almost exactly a year ago, he promised he wouldn't be meddling in the way that he was going to the French Senate, talking about the grave crisis the planet is facing the day after Rishi Sunak says it's not... I mean, it's five years. We can push about five years. It's
3: It's difficult, isn't it? It's Um, a little bit... Yeah, I mean, the timing is fantastic. But in a way, you know, I think he would be justified in saying, I'm doing what I always do, or what monarchs have always done, which is going on big state visits. You you can't do those state visits and say nothing of substance. And actually, you know, as we've just said, one of the, the great moments of partnership with... France and the rest of Europe and the rest of the world is going to be on issues of climate change. So you've got to set that out as a priority even if your government at home seems to be backpedalling on exactly that just as you're doing it.
1: And I think he he was quite shrewd in the way he worded it because what he, what he said was actually official British government policy. Still yes. is yes. official British yeah, government yeah, yeah.
0: policy. Yeah, and exactly. It, it, he, he's saying something that though the timing might be awkward ultimately Rishi Sunak doesn't Say can't formally officially. disagree with exactly. It's not a grave crisis. Um, well, let's let's talk then about what happened yesterday and the politics of it. Um, Matthew, you you know the, the 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 inner workings of the Tory Party better than most. Is this entirely about shoring up absolute core base, or do you think it might have broader appeal than that? I think it is
1: about shoring up core base out in the constituencies and in the so-called red wall. Seats. It's also about shoring up his support in uh, the, the green benches behind him uh, because there's a, a minority of, of uh, MPs who still really not reconciled to him. But I, I think he probably believes it. I've never got the impression that global warming and green stuff floats Rishi Sunak's boat. Uh, I don't think he would say he doesn't uh, agree with it. I don't think he'd say he doesn't believe in it. But I think when it comes to priorities, I, I I don't think this is a priority with him.
0: What have you made it all, Mamie?
3: Oh, I think it's baffling. Um, you know, if, if it is an attempt to shore up the, the base, you know, shore up the, the core vote, uh, I don't know if it's going to work. I think it's going to yeah. alienate a lot of, you know, former Conservative heartlands, maybe not the, the Red Wall, but, you know, places like Guildford, places in... in, in you know that this, what we're now sort of think think will go Lib Dem basically. You know, was likely to be part of a a yellow wall. Um, you know that that's that's a, a real problem for him because I think he's underestimated how much environment does matter to an awful lot of voters. Um, it seems like this is terrible signalling, yeah. Uh, and also, like, I, I I I just don't really understand it as a political stunt because you know when you when you look at the substance of what he's announced, there's very little there. Most of it is sort of. You know, tilting at windmills. He's talking yeah, about yeah. cancelling things that were never even on the table. <laughs>
0: seven but, bins.
3: Seven bins. Yes. Or, or You, well, you know, won't
0: be of, seven bins or having your uh, burgers tax on tax. meat. I yeah, know, yeah. but
3: like nobody, not the opposition, nobody in real policy terms was talking about that happening right now. So to be cancelling it, sort of, it, it just seems like a. It's such a political stunt. I just don't know why he thinks those... Right, that's enough of that nonsense. Right, though, coming up, you know, uh, we'll talk about British social attitudes in just a moment. But first, Business does not t- love this. Business doesn't love the uncertainty. Yeah, yeah the flip-flopping um, around. Yeah, the flip-flopping around. And-
0: but but the, the other thing I don't really understand, Matthew, is who it, normally you'd make a big move like this if you were losing support to a wing. But given that the Labour Party isn't... You know, there's no, there's no advantage over Labour for doing... It. You know, they, he could have just left the whole thing alone. It wouldn't have been an issue at the next election. And then if he really wants to, if he does win, he could do something about it afterwards if he thought it was you know, there's a practical issue. I think British politicians, especially Conservative politicians,
1: don't actually get the British public. They think it's the Daily Mail. They think the mm. Daily Mail is basically the British public and they see things through that prism. They don't understand that a, a lot of people do care, including a lot of Conservative people, mm. do, do care about the green agenda. And I think he's making a, a tactical mistake in, in that I think the Tories are especially vulnerable in the home counties in the West Country where the Liberals are the challengers. And, and this plays straight to the idea of people switching from Conservative yeah, yeah. to Liberal because they're, they're fed up. But you've got to admit he's he's got balls. He's He's made what is essentially a headline-grabbing, short-termist announcement... And uh, described it as a, an announcement from someone who doesn't want to yeah. uh, um, attract headlines and is thinking in the long term. The long it's term not term long decisions. term.
0: Yes. It's short term. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and actually, uh, yeah, maybe you're right. The, the 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 sort of trying to trying to be seen to do something mm. in his own. Term. He's he's making his own weather rather than reacting yes. to everyone else's. Is, is, is important. But it's um, the
3: worst kind of weather. Well, and
0: also, I think there is also <laughs> if you take take out the. Topic the green you know greenery and just analyze it you know from the same sense that it comes up in our focus groups all the time people say oh, I'm not really listening to him I've sort of given up on him you know it's all flip flopping all over the place I don't really know what the, what's going on this is just another example of basically he's launched a campaign against himself and his own government that he sat in for <laughs> three four years you know the, he I... was the chancellor when they adopted this thing yeah and the same ministers are about right now saying this is a terrible idea, We're the same ones who two, three years ago were out saying it was a... Nothing's changed. <laughs> Sorry, the risk of sounding like Theresa May.
3: But calling you know, for change is difficult when you've been in power for yeah. as, long as, as long as they have. It just seems like a really controversial thing to be doing. Yeah. Also, I, it just seems odd that sort of, you know, at a time where, you know, part of the argument is that we're ahead of everybody else on this, and you mm-hmm. think it's almost as if, having worked with Boris Johnson, you've... You just accept that you say world beating a lot without ever meaning it. Yeah. So the moment there is a danger that you might be world beating somewhere, you might actually be sort of performing a, a, the role of leadership yeah. when it comes to climate. You've got to, you've got to stop that and now, immediately. Now all
0: the Brexiteers are boasting that we are aligning with the EU. <laughs> yes, yeah, politics no. has gone mad. Yeah,
1: I, I was struck though. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I was struck by your. Your um, expression, making the weather. Uh, for the first time in a long time, he is making the mm. weather. And what I think we all know from listening to our our listeners, our, our readers and others, uh, is, is that at the moment, the British public are not even prepared to give the Tories a hearing uh, to give him the time of day. And he has got a hearing this yeah. time and he is being given the time of day.
0: And it's a bit more retail mm. consumer policy, whatever you think of it, mm. than his five pledges he unveiled at the beginning yes. of the year yeah. about mm. GDP and inflation and sort of lots of, you know, it's quite spreadsheety and not very, yeah. you know, Stuff real that we're only going to remember if he doesn't keep If he doesn't meet it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, debt falling as a percentage of something, nobody cares about that, was at least as a real <clears> life...
3: But he's banking thing. on people remembering the ice. I, I cancelled tax on meat, um, and you know the things that he said, which to be honest, just are patently untrue. I don't think people will go into the granular detail like that. I think the way this will be remembered will be the Tories are anti green they're they're not very good at thinking about climate change they're not very good about thinking yeah. about the future and i think you know people who just see the headlines will walk away thinking this is a government that doesn't care about our future or our children's future and i'm not sure that's a great selling point in it in just an play, election
1: play devil's advocate once more there is no way uh, that, that we could have kept to these targets, we do not have the infrastructure, we do not have the charging points, we have not reorganised the national grid for everybody charging their cars, Uh, we have not really found a way for people to heat their homes using not using gas in large parts of Britain. No flat, no apartment, for instance, can can use the the heat exchange method. So, in a sense, he is kind of recognising reality. Yeah.
3: Although, as a government, you'd hope you'd recognise reality and try and fix it.
0: Yes, quite. Instead, he's <laughs> yes, just he's just yes. got sort
3: of like we're, we're sticking to the aim. 20, you know, this, then, this suppose, will happen. I I'm suppose, just not going actually, to show you how.
0: Then maybe, the, I mean, ultimately, maybe the mistake was to set the target in 2020 for 2030, and then basically do nothing for the last three years.
3: And now, but in part because do the government's been for, for spasmed by
0: mm. uh, psychodrama and all of that. Um, that actually maybe he is right to do it now because they're not going to meet it. But the risk is, if you put it off, you end up thinking, oh, we don't need to start worrying about that for another five years. And so it rolls on.
3: And also, you know, the overall aim hasn't changed. You just, you're just you not showing how yeah. you're ever going to get there. So, you know, while talking about the long term and not being the politician who wants to do something short term for <laughs> yes. quick political benefit, actually what he's done is create a hell of an essay crisis for whoever takes over after. Because yeah, they're going to have to meet these yeah. these objectives with policies that don't yet exist in very little time.
0: And it might turn out to be... Bad policy. It might be smart politics. If, you know, given that he's basically been 20 points behind for the last year, it hasn't really... You know, there was an uptick where Liz Truss went. It hasn't really moved the dial at all. A big throw of the dice, making the weather. It's popular with some people. If he gets back anyone from the Labour Party...
3: He's got nothing to lose. Yeah. But this really is a case of the, the tail wagging the dog. I mean, if you if you are... If you think you might only have a year left in in office... And you have an opportunity to shape the future of this country. Is this really what you want to be doing? That, that's all I'd say.
0: And then, I suppose, looking ahead to the party conference, Matthew, we, inter- we, we understand this long uh, term decisions for a brighter future is the sort of th- the theme <laughs> of the Tory conference. So, we'll probably be getting more of this. <laughs> I love those
1: slogans. <laughs> Long-term decisions for a brighter future, uh, as opposed to short-term uh, decisions <laughs> for a dark, more miserable future. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, it, it's almost—I've already forgotten Labour's. Give, give, give us back Give Britain, give Britain back its future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you are. You've forgotten it. Thought, that I've says everything. That. Long-term backs for future Britain. <laughs> Um, Good. Well, we'll wait and see. And I imagine we'll see some polling, you know, because it is interesting, you know, where you can can poll individual policies and they're popular. uh, So it's possible for both delaying the petrol and diesel car things to be popular and net zero to be popular without voters, because they're quite annoying, uh, realising the two yeah. things might be connected. So it'll be quite interesting to see what happens over the next couple of days to the headline uh, poll figures. Matthew, Paris and Mamreyn, rather than you can read Matthew in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Box and catch Mamreyn on the Stories of Our Times podcast wherever you're listening to this podcast. Up next, it's the British Social Attitudes Survey, celebrating 40 years. How have our opinions changed? You're listening to the Webbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Uh, yeah, we're rewinding the clock today. In 1983, Karma Chameleon was the best-selling single in the UK. Margaret Thatcher defeated Michael Foote's Labour in a crushing victory. And the British Social Attitude Survey was born. It was a huge piece of work. It's carried out every year since then, exploring people's social, political and moral attitudes. And it's now been running for 40 years. There's so much in it. Uh, that we want to talk about today. Everything from people's ex- expectations about the role of the state to class attitudes to who does the housework in your house. I'm delighted well, like to be joined by Gillian Pride, Deputy Chief Executive at the National Centre for Social Research, which is behind the British Social Attitudes Survey. Hi, Gillian. Good to see you. Good morning, Matt. Um, before we get into what it tells us, explain what the survey is and how it works
4: yes yeah, so as you say it's been running for 40 years we interview a random probability representative sample of the population so it's a very high quality survey methodology we interview something like 3000 people per year um and it's been going for 40 years, as you say, and it was set up with the intention of tracking public attitudes over time. So many of our questions are carried forward from one year to another so that we do have a long term Yeah, that to be
0: chat. able to
4: look at pictures over time. Yeah.
0: Um, and how soon, because obviously some polling is done, you know, polling done yesterday and it's out today. Mm-hmm. What's the gap between getting the results uh, and, you know, actually being able to release
4: them? Yeah. So the results we're issuing today were generally uh, the survey was carried out in sort of September, October of last year, so towards the end of last year.
0: Okay. So uh, let's dig into uh, some of what it tells us. Let's let's start with how people see the role of the government. Let's wind all the way back to the Tory Party Conference of 1983. This is what Margaret Thatcher said in the year the survey started.
4: If the state wishes to spend more. You can do so only by borrowing your savings or by taxing you more. And it's no good thinking that someone else will pay. That someone else is you. There is no such thing as public money. There is only taxpayers' money. A prosperity won't come by inventing more and more lavish public expenditure programs. You don't grow richer by ordering another cheque book from the bank. And no nation ever grew more prosperous by taxing its citizens beyond their capacity to pay.
0: So that was Margaret Thatcher. being I mean, quite clear, you know, as she said uh, in other occasions, no such thing as the state back in 1983, that was. So let's listen to Rishi Sunak when he was Chancellor in March 2020.
1: Today, I am making available an initial £330 billion of guarantees, equivalent to 15% of our GDP. That means any business who needs access to cash to pay their rent, their salaries, suppliers or purchase stock will be able to access a government-backed loan or credit on attractive terms. And if demand is greater than the initial £330 billion I'm making available today, I will go further and provide as much capacity as required. I said whatever it takes, and I meant it.
0: So, Gillian, quite a shift from the state isn't there to solve all your problems, more spending just means more taxes, to whatever it takes. And obviously, you know, there's particularly special time, you know, in the middle of the pandemic and lockdown and so on. But what? how have the public attitudes changed over 40 years when it mm. comes to the size of the state, the role of the state, tax and spending?
4: So this is one thing where we've seen the change has been quite cyclical. So sometimes people have moved to the left a bit, sometimes to the right a bit. Sometimes the government, uh, people want the government to do more, sometimes less. And similarly, attitudes to taxes have sometimes people have wanted more taxation, more public spending, and sometimes less taxation and less spending. Um, but what we're finding now uh, Uh, Is post the pandemic, we're now seeing uh, really people are in the era of wanting big government. So we're seeing record levels of people wanting government to intervene, to reduce inequality, to help industry to grow, to ensure a decent standard of living for the elderly and to keep prices under control. So, um, yeah, so this is... is Despite the high level of spending post-pandemic, the demand is for that level of intervention and more.
0: So in a way, when you hear uh, Liz Truss this week talk about how, you know, the countries move to the left and we need to sort of hold. I mean, she's right in that sense that there has been a, a drift to what we traditionally see as more left wing views. Big state, big spending. The government is there to basically solve every problem that comes along.
4: I think that's, th- that's right, yes. Yeah, so we are, we are seeing that sort of drift at the moment. As I say, it has kind of gone up and down over the yeah. years, but at the moment... So, for example, looking at the question of whether government should increase taxes and spend more on health, education and social benefits. Back in 1983, just 32% of the public agreed with that proposition. By 1998, it was nearly twice as many, 63%. Then it dropped back in 2010 to just 31%. Um, and now it's as high as 55% once more. And those previous trends, we've sort of seen the public attitudes reacting in what's kind of called a thermostatic way. So as tax and spending goes up, services improve and people sort of react against that and say, OK, now can I have some uh, lower taxation, please? But then as services deteriorate, taxes come down, they want more more taxation and more spending. I think but post the pandemic, we haven't really seen that sort of thermostatic reaction because uh, obviously the spending levels are very high but the, ta- the demand as I said is still 55% still wanting more taxation more spending on uh, social benefits and health and so on.
0: And so when uh, you know at various points in the the ebb and flow of the last 40 years saying that that lot over there will put your taxes up sometimes that's been an effective uh, a line because people don't like paying more tax, but that's not always. Sometimes, I mean, although people very rarely go into an election promising to put up taxes, I think the mm-hmm. Lib Dems did once, well, penny on income taxes, so or, but the main parties tend not to, um, even if the public actually think that that's what they want.
4: Yeah, I mean that's a difficult point. I suppose the key where it impacts the the public is in terms of their perceptions of public services, mm. you know, and that obviously is a very important electoral issue. So we're seeing at the moment um, very low proportion uh, feeling that the NHS is doing well, for example, and I think that's part of what's feeding into these high attitudes towards more taxation and spending.
0: I suppose actually the the reverse is we will cut taxes might ha- not have the same resonance is it mind at other times that if you're saying what you are promising mm. tax cuts might not be as popular at a time when the, there's a feeling that the public services are underfunded
4: yeah and i think and we're picking that up in a lot of areas across the survey so um increasing concern about inequality we've got some uh, new statistics on poverty this year increasing proportions of people feeling that levels of poverty in the uk are high um so i think that the inequality seem to yeah, be yeah. the main concern that's coming through in the data.
0: And how does it split on party lines? Do you get a sense of what Labour supporters think and what Conservative supporters think?
4: I mean, the, so Labour are, Labour supporters are more in favour of um, taxation and spending, as you would expect, but I think um, even Conservative supporters, the support of tax, for tax and spending is higher than it has been in the past.
0: Um, and is that, um, I suppose, <laughs> there's a chicken and egg thing there, are people Labour supporters because they want uh, higher taxation and high spending or do they want higher taxation uh, and spending because their labor supporters And i suppose maybe that's in part why the labor party are doing better in the polls at the moment because they talking about investing in public services rather than tax cuts just feels more mm. in tune with the times
4: yeah, I mean, we do we do sort of try and track attitudes outside of party politics. So we have a kind of what we call the left-right scale, which tracks attitudes yeah. towards inequality and so on. And we see that that does correlate with um, Labour and Conservative support, but it's not one hundred percent correlation. Um, but things like there are big differences, as I said, in some of the attitudes towards inequality. So, for example, and the role of the state. So um, Labour are much more likely, Labour support is much more likely than Conservative to say that. Uh, the government should uh, reduce income differences between rich and poor, so 70% of Labour supporters support that versus 27% of Conservative supporters. So there are some kind of key differences yeah. in terms of the attitudes.
0: And, and looking back over 40 years, Thatcher, Major, Blair, Brown, Cameron, May, Johnson, Truss, Sunak—that That is all <laughs> of them, there's quite a lot. Um, does it all sort of flow as we would think it would, that actually, you know, Thatcher's Britain wanted lower spending, lower taxes, New Labour was higher spending, higher taxes, you know, lower, You know, then actually public support for austerity and someone in the early 2010s was quite high. And now we're in a period now of high spend, high tax.
4: I think that's right. So so generally in terms of these attitudes towards the role of the, the government, I think it, it, it largely tracked those, those um, key changes in public policy. Um, but certainly uh, the kind of big shocks do cause a disruption in attitudes. So for example... Before the financial crash in the mid-2000s, I think there was a general feeling that the role of government should be reduced, but post that, um, the increasing desire for government to intervene more... um and since pandemic, as I said, we're not seeing that reaction against the high level of spending. Yeah, I think yeah. people are very conscious of the cost of living crisis, the economy. You yeah. know, they want government to intervene to sort some of those things out.
0: It's really interesting that. It's really interesting. Uh, we talked about the British Social Attitudes Survey, which is 40 years old this year, uh, charting public opinion on a whole range of subjects since 1983. I'm still joined by Gillian Pryor, Deputy Chief Executive of the National Centre for Social Research which carries it out every year. Um, Let's turn our attention now to class and uh, the great British obsession with class. Obviously, we can't talk about class without playing a bit of this.
1: I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. (laughs) I am middle class.
2: (laughs) I know my place. (laughs)
0: Yes, uh, that was, of course, the class system sketch of the BBC 1966 with John Cleese and, of course, Roddy Barker and Ronnie Corbett. So, Julian, um, <laughs> it was, well, 20 years later, this survey uh, starts. Uh, over the last 40 years, how have our attitudes to class changed?
4: Well, I think this is interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the narrative, perhaps, has been, you know, we're all middle class now, class doesn't matter. And in fact, what we're finding in the survey is that um, despite all the changes over the last 40 years, such as Increase in proportion of higher education, the changes in the types of jobs, the reduction in, in manual working jobs, more white-collar jobs and so on. We're still seeing class identity being strong. So, it, and when the survey began, around half of people said that they were middle or working class and it's actually much the same now.
0: That's interesting. That. Do you, is it, it, does it ebb and flow at all with economics? In the good times, when people have a bit more disposable cash, do they start self-identifying as middle class? Whereas right now, if you're struggling... You might view yourself as working class because the idea that you know maybe you don't have as much disposable income, if that is indeed the thing that we think links, you know, is a defining feature of class.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the trends haven't been very strong, but I think um, we do know that people in the the highest quarter of household incomes, are, um less likely to say they're working class, so 32% of the ho- those in the highest quartile of income say they're working class compared to 52% in the lowest quartile. But it's still a significant proportion of the higher earners yeah. still regard themselves as working class. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, do you, it's, a, it's a knotty question of exactly what it is that people... Mm. It is a bit in the eye of the beholder, isn't it, as to what how people judge themselves. You know, millionaires who still think they're working class... People who don't have, you know, loads of disposable income, but consider themselves middle class because they feel like they've worked hard or own their own house or, mm. or whatever it might be. Um, and uh, do, what what is then the the interaction between class and political attitudes and uh, and that sort of thing?
4: So, when we look at I mentioned we have our kind of left wing yeah. left wing right wing scale so when we look at that so sixty five percent of people who identify as working class come out as left wing on the scale, but so do fifty six percent of people who identify as middle class, so the gap has narrowed over the years but um, you know, there is that difference, but as i said it 's not it 's not strictly one way or the other. Um, we also have a, a scale that measures liberal authoritarian issues, so issues around um, uh, uh, state intervention and so on. And we find 50, 46% of working-class people, people who identify as working-class are authoritarian on that scale versus 25% of those who are middle-class. And there we have seen the gap has increased over time. So over the survey, people who identify as working-class have become more authoritarian on that scale compared to those who identify as middle-class and less less left-wing compared to those who identify as middle-class. That's really
0: interesting. So there has been that shift. And what about in, in terms of the politics To get you able to do that, you know, class versus, you know, against Conservative and Labour, the idea that Margaret Thatcher was quite good at winning over the working class vote, then it became, you know, having traditionally been a Labour thing, Boris Johnson reaching into working class red wall areas, has Labour become, you know, the party of the workers actually become more middle class? Is that something you'll be able to...
4: I don't have it actually crossed with, you know, party yeah. identification, but I think, I mean, one thing that does come out quite clearly is that um, education level is a key driver yeah. of people's class identity. So um, uh, uh, people who are uh, have degree level or educa- education or higher, only 20% of those think of themselves as working class compared with 60% of those with GCSEs or less. Um, yeah, and, and the other thing, I think, is the fact that the, the tie with jobs isn't so strong. So um, we have a sort of classification of the type of jobs people do. And although um, 62% of those who are in working class types jobs do identify as working class, but so do 38% of those in managerial and professional occupations. So, so, so that idea that, you know, if you're doing really.
0: a trade makes you working class and an office yeah. job middle class, that's still, that's not right either. Well, let's bring in someone who's probably a better observer of, sort of outside observer of changing British attitudes to class over the last... 40 or so years. The Australian-British uh, author and comedy writer Cathy Lett joins us. Hi, Cathy.
2: Hello. How lovely to talk to you.
0: So it's great to have you with us. And you, so you arrived in London, what, in 88? So just a few years after this survey started. Yeah. How, mm-hmm. how do you think Britain's obsession with class has changed over that time?
2: Well, first of all, I, uh, we don't have class in Australia. We're very egalitarian. So I couldn't believe how class-ridden you are here. <laughs> Even your letters travel first and second class. you're like, (laughs) what? Did a first class let us get a little in-flight movie and a paper parasol cocktail on the way or something? And the people who bemused me the most were the upper class because – you know, they don't like people, they don't like their children, they keep their dogs at home and send their kids off to high class kennels called Eaton and Harrow. And yet everyone aspires to be like them. And I just found them so strange. And they don't even speak English, the upper class. They speak euphemism. So, you know, when they say to me, Oh, are you Australians, so refreshing. For a long time I thought they really, really liked me, but what that really means is rack off, you loudmouth colonial nymphomaniacs. And I'm like, how <laughs> dare they call me loudmouth? Please, I have my standards. And I don't think that obsession with class has changed that much. I mean, the research I've done says that Britain has the lowest social mobility in all of Europe, and it's still like that nursery rhyme, Tinker, Taylor, soldier, spy, rich man, poor man, you're kind of born into a slot of society and you you tend to stay there and people with received pronunciation for example are perceived you know the way prince charles talks that very round and vowel way i sound like i've had a vowel transplant even trying to do it but <laughs> they're generally perceived by by the general public they're perceived to be you know more punctual more intelligent more hygienic, better in bed. I mean, really, the upper class? I mean, you know, this the only thing I whip is cream as opposed (laughs) to this. Can't drive past a perversion without pulling over. So I don't understand why this class thing is so ingrained in your psyche and why you can't kind of escape from it. Listen, you are the only population in the world that had a revolution that asked the monarchy back. Need I say more?
0: <laughs> Although it's interesting, but part maybe part of the reason it's so ingrained, Cathy, the point that you're making is the, the, the way it reinforces opportunities. And it's, it's shown in the research, isn't it, Gillian, in terms of the idea of getting on in life, being quite closely linked to class.
4: Mm, I mean, that's right. And that's one thing, actually, where people's... Um... Uh, awareness of the impacts of class on opportunities has increased over the period. So we have 77% who now say that social class affects a person's opportunities a great deal or quite a lot. And that's actually an increase from 70% in 1983. So it's getting worse. Mm.
0: That's really, yeah, that's really interesting. If slightly, slightly depressing. Uh, let's try and end on a slightly, well, I was going to say jollier note, although possibly not less contentious. Uh, let's talk about housework. Uh... <laughs> What did people used to think uh, was the correct division of labour at home? And how has that changed?
4: Yeah, well, this is an interesting one. So, obviously, a lot has changed in 40 years in terms of women's labour market participation and so on. um, But we are not always seeing this reflected in what happens in the home. So, one thing to start with, uh, back in 1987, nearly half of the population agreed that a man's job is to earn money, a woman's job is to look after the home and family. I mean, I'm pleased to say now that's fewer than one in ten have that view. but um,
0: (laughs) Still uh, one in (laughs) ten? Yes. Are, they, are they all men? <laughs> <laughs> what do um, you make of that, Cathy? They, um, it used to be 48% said it was a man's job to earn money and a woman's to look after the home, and now it's down to, down to
2: 9%. Well, in theory, in practice, women are still doing everything. I think women are still doing 99.9% of all the housework and all the childcare. Mm-hmm. And, you know, men always say, I'd like to help more around the house, but I can't multitask, which is, of course, a biological cop-out because no man would have any trouble multitasking at, say, an orgy, he'd have no trouble at that particular time. So that does not wash. And, you know, it's in men's interest to help women round the house because it's, you know, scientifically proven that no woman ever shot her husband while he was vacuuming. So, you know, I would advise all men <laughs> to get better, in, better at housework. What does a woman really want in bed? Breakfast. Breakfast, I'm telling
0: you. Gillian, I'm not going to ask you if you've polled attitudes towards orgies. <laughs> but um, it's right there, isn't it? So four uh, nine... <laughs> Uh, so only 9% think it's a man's job to earn money and a woman's look after the home. But 63% of women said they did more than their fair share of the housework. So although the idea of equality might have, yeah. have moved...
4: That's right. And we asked about who people think should do various household tasks, like washing and ironing, household shopping, yeah. cooking and cleaning and so on. And in most of those cases, then the majority say they should be shared equally. So, for example, washing and ironing. Now we have 76% say the task should be shared. But when it comes to who actually does it, um, we say that uh 65% say the washing and ironing is mainly done by the woman in a, in a, <laughs> in a couple. Yeah. Um, and only 27% said shared equally. So, here we're seeing, you I know, behaviour.
0: I love doing the ironing. <laughs>
4: <laughs> One of my favourite jobs of the week, but behaviour really not following attitudes there. Yeah. Um,
0: well, maybe that. Hopefully, they'll they'll catch up at some point. I mean, you also didn't you obviously didn't hate us that much, Kathy, because you've stayed.
4: <laughs> well, you do
2: have your endearing charms. I mean, you know, I think the chief products of England are. Are probably you know gardening programs, TV murder mysteries set in Oxford, epigrams, puddings. You are the you are the Wimbledon of wit. I mean, you, your your wordplay when you go to a, a British dinner party, the banter lobbed back and forth is just joyous. Your sense of humour. So yeah, you do have a lot going for you. Just get rid of class and the misogyny and the toxic <laughs> stories, and then I'll be happy. they will
0: be easy, easily done, easily done. Uh, Gillian, <laughs> anything else from the survey which leapt out this time round?
4: Well, I, I think, I mean, I have to say the biggest change over the 40 years has really been the sort of liberalisation in attitudes towards moral issues such as uh, uh, sex before marriage, same-sex relationships yeah. and so on, where we, we're kind of calling it almost a revolution in terms of people's attitudes on those issues.
0: But um, interestingly, on trans issues, it's going in the opposite direction, maybe in part because of the sort of high salience of it.
4: Yeah, that's right. So in terms of... We've only been asking about transgender issues since 2016, but, for example, we now see... Um, the proportion who say that they're not at all prejudiced towards people who are transgender has actually uh, gone down from 82% in 2019 and similar in 2016 to just 64% now. Um... And now we see just 30% now say that a transgender person should be allowed to have the sex on their birth certificate changed if they want, but that's down from uh, 58% in 2016 and 53% in 2019.
0: So it's like, yeah, that's moving in the opposite direction. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. What what a brilliant thing to have building up again and again and again over time. Uh, Gillian Pyre, Deputy Chief Executive of the National Centre for Social Research and the author and comedy writer, Catherine. Thanks both uh, for joining us on Times Radio. That's so all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.
3: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials?